Hey friends, before we get to today's episode, I want to talk to you about unicorns. You know I think we're all unicorns because we have special gifts and talents, and because we're all so special, it's important that we invest in things that will help us get to the next level. In fact, 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot, and for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big off your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com slash startups. And a lot of my writing career has been, I think, keeping up that momentum in some way. It's like, I've put so much into this, I got to keep going. So for better or worse, even when I've gotten advice, maybe to put writing on hold or what have you, as I went and pursued medicine, didn't stop, you know, I kept going. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, your host and resident storyteller, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope, as always, is that you leave the conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. All right, friends, it's Halloween season, so I wanted to feature a special guest, author and psychiatrist, Justin Key. He just published his debut book with HarperCollins, The World Wasn't Ready for You. And Black Mirror meets Get Out in this gripping story collection reminiscent of the work of Octavia E. Butler, which definitely blends science fiction, horror, and fantasy to examine issues of race, class, and prejudice, an electrifying, oftentimes heartbreaking debut from an extraordinary new voice. Wow, I just love it. And Justin's work is also featured in Jordan Peele's book, Out There Screaming, an anthology of new black horror. Although Justin is considered a new voice, you'll learn from his story that he has been perfecting his craft for over 14 years. Justin has such an inspiring story. We went to college together and he's just always been such a nice guy. And I remember seeing some of his posts on Facebook over the years. And I paused because he was posting about his short stories. I take a double take because I thought, wait, isn't he a doctor? But he helped me realize that he was both and that you can do both. He was one of those people that helped me see that multi-hyphenate careers exist and you can follow more than one dream. After graduating from Stanford with a degree in human biology, Justin went to medical school at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and did his residency in psychiatry at UCLA. He lives in LA with his wonderful wife, two sons and daughter, and he is a full-time psychiatrist. In this two-part conversation, I get the opportunity to flip the script. Now, you guys know I'm not a psychiatrist. Well, sometimes I think I am. (laughs) But I got to understand the way that he thinks. And my husband actually loves horror and sci-fi, so I reluctantly watch it with him. And I've always just been curious about the minds behind this kind of work. I love learning about Justin's story and how he comes up with such fascinating stories. And his journey is just also an inspiring story about unwavering pursuit of a dream. I can't wait for you all to hear this conversation. Conversation, so let's get to it. All 
right, Justin, thank you so much for coming on No Straight Path. I just love your story, everything I've read about it. So I'm excited to actually talk to you about your story. So thank you for making time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ashley. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. So I want to start from the beginning. I want to start from your childhood. Can you tell us about how you grew up? Yeah, so I grew up in Southeast D.C., actually inside D.C. Some people grew up around D.C., but I was in D.C. It was just me and my mom, no siblings, single parent home. You know, I have two half brothers and the older one is seven months younger than me. So my father was out of the picture, I think, pretty quickly. But me and my mom, she worked at the Library of Congress, which meant that I had access to any book, like any and all books. So I was a bookworm from early on, and my mom did a really good job loving on me. You know, I always remember her being super supportive, maybe a little bit overprotective, you know, always, I think, just wanting the best for me, like with me and her growing up. So I think that she did a great job at that. You know, growing up in D.C., it was Chocolate City at the time. Went to all black public schools, elementary school, middle school, high school. You know, it was all black schools. So that was, you know, cool to grow up in. And also just seeing like how the world is different. Like afterwards, growing up informed a lot, especially with my writing. My mom's family is from Southern Virginia, which is about six hour drive away from D.C., you know, and she was really the one that kind of moved away. So my family's hub was there. So we would go down back there often. Um, I used to go stay with my grandma every summer. It was Martinsville, Virginia. And I was the baby of the family. Like my mom was the second to youngest of five, but the youngest of four girls. And she had me later in life. I have cousins who you know, old enough to be my parent, like a couple of them. And then the other ones are like 10, 17, 20 years older than me. So I was really the baby of the family. You know, I'd go stay with my grandma. And for what I hear, you know, she was nicest to me out of everybody. Just that stage she was in her life. My cousins would always, you know, take me out and, you know, I think always show a lot of love towards me. And then I had second cousins who were a little bit younger than me like eight, 10 years younger than me. It was a good, I think, nurturing place to be in the family. And so, yeah, you know, I think that those are all the positive things. I think I was a little bit of an anxious kid. I remember always thinking deeply about things, thinking deeply about life and consciousness and why are we here and death and all those things. And I think looking back now, I would call myself like an anxious kid. You know, it wasn't like where I'd be in hysterics or anything like that, but just, I think, constantly thinking. And I remember there was a period of time where I would spend a lot of the nights like up, just like either playing solitaire to myself or waiting for the daytime to come. Not necessarily, I think, afraid of anything, but I just think thinking a lot about different things. That's always been my mind. My mind has always been like questioning. You know, my, my mom will tell you, I used to question her a lot. And I'm paying for it now. Actually, my son is the same way. And then some things that I guess I'll get into that definitely impacted me happened when I was like in teenage years. But I would say like from a family perspective, you know, everybody always really loved on Justin. I remember from a young age, you know, I don't think there was an external pressure, but I remember wanting to be a doctor and the family would call me Dr. Key. I don't remember it and I'm like, oh, I have to do this way, but just... I think people in the family was like, oh, he's smart, he's kind, he's this, you know, and I think everybody always had high hopes for me, which I'm thankful for looking back. I feel like the pressure that I had, 
I brought to the table. Like, for example, I would get good grades and there was a lot of, I think, excitement and praise. And without a reason for me to think this, I'd always wonder, I was like, what if I don't, you know, keep it up? What if next time, like, you know, I don't do as well, am I going to disappoint everybody? And, you know, it's kind of a mindset that I kind of continue on today, like with my writing, with being a parent, being a doctor. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. Very interesting too, to just hear that you were this deep thinker at such a young age. And talk to us a little bit more about reading and perhaps maybe your love for writing growing up and maybe even science, right? You have this multi-hyphenate career. Can you tell us a little bit about how that entered or how that played out in your childhood or even in your young adult life? Yeah, I remember really getting into reading with Goosebumps, I think maybe in second grade or so. I don't remember how I was introduced to it, but I just remember like eventually, like I'd read like however many there were out at the time, like 30, 40, 50. I would just like really devour them. And I like thinking back now, just love these taking kind of, I think, almost pretty much ordinary neighborhoods or ordinary like people what have you. And then you throw the wrench in like some extraordinary like situation. I think that that was always fun for me. Uh, and it was really like a gateway for reading. Went on and read Animorphs. So did like that whole series. And then quickly, I think, graduated, I think, to reading like more grown up or longer things. I remember Jurassic Park was like maybe one of the favorite movies I'd seen as a kid. Just, I think, fascinated by the just the dinosaurs and, and that story. And then I asked my mom to bring home the book that it was based on. And I remember reading the book and thinking that Steven Spielberg had like messed it up. And I was like, there's so much more in this book. It's so deeper. There's so much more in detail. I remember learning so much. Michael Crichton wrote Jurassic Park and he's one of my favorite authors. And he actually had gone to medical school. And I remember just learning so much from reading while being entertained. He just had a whole lot of tidbits about DNA, genetics, just about animal behavior. So I was like, I can be in this world. I could be immersed in this. I could be entertained, but I can also learn. So, you know, read Stephen King, Peter Straub. I think there were definitely books that were too old for me. I think I read like Coldest Winter Ever, you know, just whatever I could kind of get my hands on. And at some point, I don't know exactly when, but the thought transitioned to like creating my own stories. I remember early on, maybe like third or fourth grade, there was maybe it was part of some writing project or some project in school, but I'd written this thing called like the Butterfly Chronicles, which I think was the story of some boy who went back in time and kept being reincarnated as like different prehistoric animals. And I like illustrated it and, you know, got it bound. And then I also remember like writing short stories in high school and then really in college is where I started like thinking more formally, okay, you know, maybe I could make this into something. Maybe I can, you know, become like a professional writer, you know, and do for people that magic that it did for me. So that was one part of my brain. You know, the other part as a kid, I was naturally good at like math. It's really just like a parlor trick now because with calculators, you don't really need it. But I was good at math, just mental math, always had a fascination for science. I think it was the same part of my brain that just questioned the world, always wanted to know why. So I did well in school with those. And I was also aware that it came easy to me where, 
you know, it doesn't come easy for a lot of people. So I think that because that kind of was inherently well for me, like the other subjects were ones that really is just, it became how much work I put into it. Whereas I know, I remember even thinking about it in a way, like I remember having classmates who, you know, would, would work harder than I would, at like subjects like math or like physics or what have you, and not do as well. I remember from a very early age, I look at the world and it was hard for me to be happy or proud of kind of my abilities because I always thought about, but I didn't choose to have this ability and somebody else does it. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, first of all, I'm definitely that person that tried really hard at math and it just was not working for me. That's why I went to law school. But <laughs> so you were one of those people that I probably would have been upset with. But it is interesting how you thought that way. You know, one of the things that happened to me, well, I guess it didn't happen to me. It happened to somebody else. It was my cousin. So I was the baby of the family. And it's a big part of my story. My cousin, who was eight years older than me, he lived in DC. So like his mom live like in the Maryland area. So he was like the closest one. He was always like a brother to me, you know, and we'd spend a lot of time together. He had a lot of behavioral issues, you know, I think in and out of juvenile hall, got into a lot of fights, I think didn't finish high school, just gamut of like difficult, I think, upbringing in life. So he was shot and killed when he was 25. I was 17. And I think that really kind of solidified for me It's like, you know, I didn't choose to have the loving mom that I did. I didn't choose to have a a mind that like excels in in school or I didn't choose to like be anxious about making like whether it's bad decisions or getting in trouble or what have you. And I always remember I would hear that people in the family would say that we had been so similar as younger because I was a silly kid and read a lot. And I think people would say that like he was like that when he was younger. I almost see that the fact that we went in different paths is almost like no fault of my own. So it's been a kind of ingrained like, okay, you know, well, what am I going to do with it? You know, if I'm been given this life or this ability to be able to go forward and, you know, go to Stanford and go to med school and now like, you know, have a family, have a book deal, you know, I need to knock it out of the park because other people, you know, my cousin didn't have these opportunities. That's how I was thinking back then. And it continues kind of in my mindset for better or for worse. Yeah. So it sounds like you put a lot of pressure on yourself and it sounds like you've been able to achieve a lot of great things, like a lot of overachievers who, and a lot of overachievers are anxious, you know, but then there's that flip side, like you said, for better or for worse, where it can be kind of negative because then you are basing your self-worth on what you're accomplishing and not really just like who you are. Is that how you feel? Am I describing it correctly? Yeah. You know, it's something I definitely like have, they go in parallel. You know, I think that I definitely want to, you know, take advantage of the life I feel like I've been, however you want to call it, like blessed with or that I have. But I also, you know, recognize that I think one of the positive attributes I have, I think that, you know, um, I think I'm a likable person, good person. And, you know, I've surrounded myself with good people, good friends, partners, business partners, what have you. And I think, you know, so I do recognize that in terms of, you know, I have inherent value as a person. I do think it still goes back to like, okay, well, some of those attributes I didn't choose 
basically it's a nature versus nurture. Both of them are things you don't choose. I'm grateful for it and want to strive to continue to be that. But I do try to mentally or purposefully separate the two, you know, be like, okay, if I don't accomplish anything else, that doesn't mean that my life is like a failure, but it's while I'm here and still able to, it's like, okay, you know, since I'm here and I have this ability that a lot of people may really want for and may never get, you know, who am I to squander it? I appreciate you sharing your thought process on that just because I never actually thought like that. I, you know, it's the science background that I think you have just thinking about the nature part. You know, I, I think intellectually, I understand that. I think another way to look at it is everybody has natural gifts and talents and how do we create environments to support those gifts and talents? And some people get it, like you said, and some people don't. And so what is your responsibility and how do you lean into that? So friends, we're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about another amazing podcast, and that's Latinx Empower, hosted by Thaisa Fernandez, which is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Latinx Empower is a podcast that features interviews with top-level executives, entrepreneurs, and innovators from Latin America, aiming to demystify the tech industry by providing listeners with insider perspectives and insights from Latin American leaders who have succeeded in their careers. I think you'll love a recent episode on toxic positivity in the workplace. Listen to Latinx Empower wherever you get your podcast. And you've certainly leaned into it in such an inspiring way. And I'm curious about your decision to become a psychiatrist and also write at the same time. You know, tell us about that. Yeah. So wanted to be a doctor from a young age. Full disclosure, when I was in like fourth grade, I read Gifted Hands by Ben Carson. You know, I dressed up as Ben Carson <laughs> in like fourth grade. I think that it was the right book for me at the time, just in terms of like seeing like, you know, a black neurosurgeon. And so I wanted to be a neurosurgeon like as a kid. And I remember even somebody, I told that to somebody and maybe it was like a teacher. And I think she said, oh, you just, you want to do it for the money. I was like, I didn't, I don't know how they make. It just seems like you can do like amazing things. So had it kind of in my head that I wanted to go and become a doctor. Going into college was pre-med when I entered Stanford. And, you know, Stanford has this human biology major, which is like a Bachelor of Arts. It's not a Bachelor of Science. So you don't actually have to do the pre-med requirements as part of the major. So I think I went through the first year at Stanford, kind of like maybe midway through second year. I started thinking, you know, I've only been one track mind my whole life of like being a doctor. You know, what if I want to do something else? What if I want to explore something else? So I kind of took a step back from being like formally pre-med took a lot of like creative writing classes, was like also a pseudo English major because throughout that time, I knew also I had this interest in writing. You know, I'd always like, you know, fantasize about, you know, writing novels, publishing novels, being able to potentially see the words that I've written, like be adapted and be on like the, the movie screen. So I started taking classes there, I started just exploring like my own writing and short stories took a lot of workshop classes there. Mm -hmm. And it was about halfway through my college career. So it was 2007, between sophomore and junior year. I just finished reading 
the seventh Harry Potter book, like it came out. And my best friend at the time, Robert, who's still my best friend, I saw him this morning. <laughs> we got it in the mail, the Harry Potter book. We read it in like a day. And we were in the same room, just read it in like a day, day and a half. And I remember after that, I sat down to start trying to write my own thing. And before I knew it, I had a hundred pages. I don't know how long it took, but I think I wrote every day. And, you know, maybe like a couple weeks later, maybe it was a month later, or I had a hundred pages and I was like, well, now I have to finish it. You know, I got this far. So I finished the first draft of a novel like that summer in 2007. It's sitting here. I printed it out. It's sitting here on my uh, bookshelf. And then I put it aside and I started my next one. I had read Stephen King's on writing. He's one of my favorite writers. And a lot of his advice imprinted on me at the time. He said the first million words of practice. So I simultaneously was excited about what I was writing. Just read the last Harry Potter book, like this big, you know, cultural phenomenon. I was like, oh, what if this is big, et cetera? Like, what if this really resonates with people? But at the same time, recognizing, okay, I may be starting a marathon, you know, and this may just be me putting in the work so that when I'm finished with it, Mm. I go, I put it aside, go start something new. This is what Stephen King would do. And then three months later, come back to what I finished, read it, revise it, get people to read it, get feedback. So very early on, I knew that those things were important. And very early on, I've always been about like sharing my work with friends, getting part of writing groups. So by the time I graduated, I think I had written like drafts of three novels. So this is like 2009. Decided not to go to medical school at that time. I landed in the Bay Area. I worked as like a project assistant, like entry level at this consulting firm for nonprofits in San Francisco. So really like a day job mm-hmm. while you know continuing to write. I did that for a year while writing and submitting like my novels to agents, trying to find an agent. And then I think being there in that job, I wasn't really satisfied with it. I was like, you know, I think I really still want to do medicine. It was still like a passion of mine. I think that scientific part of my brain and wanting to really be like in the driver's seat when it came to helping people. Because there, as a consultant for for nonprofits, you know, we would collect data on maybe like health organizations or clinics. So I would see like the people doing the work. And, you know, our job was to kind of consult them, consult for them and say like, you know, this is how you can do better when applying for grants again. So I decided to do the shadowing thing where I shadowed surgeons at UC Davis and then decided, okay, you know, I think I could do this and applied to medical school. And that takes like a year and a half process. Oh, and I studied for the MCAT. So did all that process while continuing to write, you know, that was always there. And then I remember entering medical school in 2013. I just finished like this draft of a novel that I've been working on for like a few years. So this is maybe like the fifth draft. Mm. And I was trying to find agents for it, which is a, you know, it's a grueling process where basically you're cold querying just a bunch of agents, like based on this big database and you get a whole lot of rejections. There are some people who say like, ah, you know, I want to read a little bit more. I think the furthest I got was I had a few people who, maybe three people who wanted to read the whole novel. Mm-hmm. And I tell people it's ultimately a learning experience. They saw like potential, but it wasn't for them. So I entered medical school around this time. And that's when I decided, okay, maybe I can't work on a new novel or work on novels at this time because it takes so much energy, but maybe I can work on short stories. 
that can be something that can do in between all of the work you have to do as a medical student. And so that's when I shifted more to writing short fiction. And I looked up venues for short fiction, like magazines that publish short fiction, stay with writing groups like the best of my abilities. And it was a way for me, I think, to really kind of perfect the craft in a smaller way. And I was able to kind of juggle it with medical school. You asked how I decided to become a psychiatrist. Coming into med school, I I don't think I knew that psychiatrists were like doctors. You know, I don't think I knew much about, you know, mental health. It was something that wasn't talked about too much in my family. I think it's talked about more now in my circles because I've entered into it. But my classmates will tell you that I've been gung-ho for psychiatry from the beginning. What happened was that after my first year going into the first summer looking for research projects, you know, there was like a autism summit that was going to be on campus. And I had actually just read like a Dean Koontz novel where like the main characters had autism. And I just found it fascinating. And just out, out of interest, I went to the conference, ended up like connecting with this professor who I didn't know it at the time, but his MO was like recruiting child psychiatrists. And I remember also going to like a couple like physician writer panels and two out of three of them were psychiatrists. Mm. And I think that I quickly saw the field meshed with my love for storytelling and narrative, like being able to, to help patients find that or create that or better understand that. So I think I went into my third year of medical school when you do all the rotations yeah. with the thought, okay, let me just make sure that surgery isn't something that I want to do. And, you know, I remember not feeling any like draw or any like grief over thinking, okay, I'm not going to become a surgeon. But I think I gave a lot of other things a a good try, like in really seeing like where it is that I wanted to go. And I think that psychiatry with it being, you know, profession of mental health also offset some of the, for lack of a better term, like the toxicity that's in, you know, medicine, just in terms of it's a hard culture. I resented it from the beginning coming in with like other interests and also I had been married for a couple of years and we had our first child like in the first year of medical school. So I was already resistant to the idea of like, I got to put every single piece of me into this because, you know, I'd already had other people who needed pieces of me. Mm. And I think that psychiatry ended up having like more awareness of that. So it's something that I feel like I gravitated more towards just from the very beginning. Yeah. Oh, that's such a fascinating story. And I just love how you found alignment with storytelling and psychiatry and writing from just like a passion perspective and an interest perspective. And then also from a lifestyle perspective, when you think about having a family and saying, okay, maybe psychiatry is going to make more sense for being able to share different parts of yourself because you're needed in so many different places. And I agree. I feel like just the medical industry, and it's just tough. There's a lot of overlap with the legal industry. And when I, I felt like when I would chat with my friends in medical school, when I was in law school, they understood you know, just the amount of work that's required. And even everything that you were telling me and how you're able to just write on the side. And I didn't even realize you had your first child already in medical school. Like, did you sleep? You know, how did you live your life? <laughs> there was a period of time where I didn't sleep as much as maybe I should have. I would. I remember going to the library and studying, but also, you know, I would try to take a chunk of time to work on writing or, you know, I always thought of like a writer's job is to also read. So like read like fiction, which became, I think, 
as I went through, I noticed that that was a little bit ambitious. One thing that I did do was the last summer that we had is between like second and third year. So the first two years of med school is mainly like lectures, labs, you know, you're learning all the stuff about medicine. The last two years are like when you're in the hospital. So first two years is like you think of like whenever like classes are going to be scheduled, it's like between nine and five type thing. Third and fourth years, like that's all out the window. It's like being in the hospital at 530 a.m. You might be here till midnight. It's a big shift. And then, you know, summers go away after that. So between my second and third year that summer, I applied for this workshop, Clarion West Writers Workshop. And it's a pretty prestigious workshop in the science fiction and fantasy community. I had applied to it in 2012 when George R. R. Martin was teaching because that was how I learned about it. Didn't get in then, but I applied again in 2015. I got in and was able to make it work with the med school. It was a little bit of a tug of war there, but I ended up making it work. And it was six weeks where you go. It's in Seattle. Me and 17 other writers, we would go and you write a short story a week and you critique everybody else's short story for the week. Every week has a different instructor who teaches us different things, facilitates the workshops. So it's very intensive. And I remember going there thinking I'm about to go into third year of med school. I probably won't be able to write that much. So I went in there like super focused. And I think somebody at the end of it tallied up how many words where everybody wrote. And I wrote like a total of 40,000 as the highest. And the second highest was like 30,000. And I've almost gotten all of those short stories like professionally published. Three of them are in my collection that just came out. Like after that, going into third year, it's like, okay, I don't have much time to write, but like I can spend some time like taking the feedback I got and editing this short story or, you know, facilitating, like sending it out to these venues, trying to get them published. I think since med school, I've written in spurts. You know, that was a big spurt. I'd have other times where I would, you know, I think once a year, my wife would like gift me going away to like a local hotel and writing. So, you know, I would do that, just really like write as much as I could and then manage it in the other in-between time. There was periods of time in residency where when I was on night float, so I'd be up, not up definitively all night, but I'd be on call all night. So it ranges from just broken sleep to being up all night. And after I would get off, I would go to like one of those shared workspaces. It was in New York. I forget what it was called, but I would go and like, and write and work on a novel that actually I was working on at the time. I just turned into my editor at HarperCollins. I was working on it back then. I think that was a time where probably looking back, it was like, okay, maybe that was doing it a little bit too much. Now I'd say definitely in this stage, I need my sleep. I've gotten to to a frustrating stage where, you know, if I'm exhausted, I'll fall asleep at the computer writing. And it's kind of like an exhausting thing where I'm like, oh, so I'm actually more mindful now. I was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to write well unless I get good sleep. So now I don't lose too much sleep over writing, but there's for a lot of the time, like I would, I would write at night, I'd write in the morning, you know, because that's when the kids would usually be down unless they're having just those periods where they have rough nights, which happens from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So there's just so much discipline behind that. Do you think that's just inspired by passion? It's just like, this is just what you love doing? Discipline wise, there's something else that I don't think I chose for myself. You know, my family would 
always say that I had a lot of discipline. Just one story, I was overweight as a kid and, you know, enough so to be like, you know, teased, not horribly, but enough that, you know, it was noticeable. And the summer before high school, like I researched it. My mom got me a George Foreman. I would eat the same thing every day. Like I cut out sugar. I haven't really had like juice since then. Like I was 14, you know, just drink water. You know, I would have like plain oatmeal like every morning, et cetera. So I don't know what it was about me. And I think that that continues on now with a lot of things. I'm just able to, when I'm commit to something or kind of in the zone with it, it's, you know, I can easily, I think, like shut it on or shut it off. And I just remember my family saying like how disciplined I was like seeing that. I think I lost like 30 pounds that summer going into it. So I think that aspect of myself has always been there, which has done well for like the different you know, careers, like it's done well for going and being a medical student, especially with like having other things. And it's definitely done well, I think, for writing. When I was at Clarion West, he wasn't one of our instructors, but he had instructed before, Neil Gaiman, and who's written like Sandman and American Gods. And he said that through the different classes he had seen come through the Clarion West, no matter like what the predictions were or who stand out or what have you, he says consistently is those who continue to write, you know, and just continue to go at it are the ones who, you know, you can predict are going to be successful. And, you know, I've I just I've continued on for like the 15 years of going through like the rejections, going through the, you know, I think early on, I think people not really taking the writing as seriously or what have you, whether it was at Stanford and just really trying to take the feedback and use it to grow and just continue at the craft. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows and the lessons learned. Remember to share the podcast with friends and family. And my hope is that these stories help you navigate your No Straight Path journey. If this content is adding value to your life, and I hope it is, please take a few minutes out of your day to rate the show and write a review. You can click the link in the show notes to write a review. It helps other listeners find the show, and I just really appreciate it. Have a lovely week, embrace the journey, and remember, you're not alone.